0: welcome to grit nation i'm joe cadwell the host of the show and on today's episode i have the pleasure of speaking with history professor and author aaron goings Aaron's latest work titled The Port of Missing Men is an in-depth look into life and legend surrounding Billy Gold, a charismatic, controversial, and infamous labor organizer of the Sailors Union of the Pacific. After being convicted for the murder of a good friend, Billy was unjustly credited with the murder of dozens of port workers and was branded by the press as the ghoul of Gray's Harbor. Aaron's book looks into this bizarre slice of history and attempts to untangle the complicated story of big business organized labor, citizen committees, and shady detective agencies in pursuit of the truth behind the multitude of dead bodies known as the floater fleet that clogged the frigid waterways of Grays Harbor, Washington in the early 1900s. More than just a true crime novel, The Port of Missing Men exposes the brutal treatment sailors and loggers suffered at the hands of lumber barons and ship owners in the early Pacific Northwest extraction economy, and details the heated and sometimes violent clashes between pro-union and anti-union forces. Aaron's book exposes a class system of income inequality that persists even today and serves as a poignant reminder that the fight for fair pay, safer working conditions, and basic worker rights is far from over. After this episode, be sure to check out the show notes for more information about Aaron Goings and his book, The Port of Missing Men. And now on to the show. Aaron Goings, welcome to Grit Nation. Hey, thanks so much for
1: having me. Uh, Good to talk to you, Joe.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Aaron, for taking your time to be on the show today. I'm really excited to introduce you to my listener audience. You are an author of a book that I recently finished called the port of missing men, Billy Goal, labor and the brutal times in the Pacific Northwest. And for those who don't know Billy Goal's story, it's an interesting story. Uh, a fella who was once considered to be perhaps the the the, the first or largest serial killer in America uh, seems like maybe there's a upon reading your book there's a little more to the story that has deeper roots in labor history. And before we get into your book and Billy Goal, Aaron, what got you interested in writing a book about? labor history and Billy's story. Right. So thanks so much
1: uh, for asking me, asking me that. So I'm a historian. I work uh, and teach history and research history. And growing up in a working class family, a blue collar family on Washington's coast, I'm always very interested in the working class experience. And growing up in a working class family, it's kind of hard to escape the reality of class—you see it all over the place. You see it in conditions faced by working people, including uh, me and my family, versus those who own, say, factories, etc., and other bits of business. And so, when I was in college, first-generation college student, working-class college student, I um, was fairly turned off by the traditional story of history, uh, which is often, uh, to this day, is still a very top-down. Uh, story, uh, elite white men and their heroic acts. So I picked up first uh, Howard Zinn's famous People's History. And from there, I went on, learned learned about the Wobblies, very prominent here in the Northwest. Um, And more and more, I saw my story reflected. I saw the working class majority's uh, story reflected. And I, at that point, really, uh, when I was in my early 20s until now, My main goal, professional goal, personal goal, is to research and write and tell working class stories, working class history, uh, because it's a very different story than the one you get from the news media, uh, from most textbooks and the like. And this, I thought, the Billy Goal story, because his life is fairly well known Uh, in the Northwest, that this was a great opportunity to reach a larger than usual audience with a labor history
0: book. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, in reflection on the the captains of industry, the Rockefellers and the And the Carnegies and those type of people—they are sort of idolized, but there are a lot of bad sides to to what they uh, had accomplished as well. And a lot of that holds true today. And I think we just recently, back with the uh, Occupy Wall Street, got a a fresh taste of what income inequality was all about. And so, in writing your book, uh, which centers around Gray's Harbor and Aberdeen, Hoquiam area, uh, there was a huge division of wealth back in the early 1900s. And why did that division of wealth become so prominent?
1: The roots of of that inequality uh, really have a lot to do with the uh, nature of industrial capitalism. So whether you're in Pacific Northwest, where the largest industry by far, almost the only industry in the late 19th, early 20th century, or certainly the largest by far, uh, is lumber. Whether you're talking about mining, whether you're talking about steel mills, um, or uh, large-scale plantation agriculture, um, the owners of, of those firms, uh, the owners of logging camps, they had such incredible power. They had real control over the political parties, both the Republicans and the Democrats. They uh, had a lot of say In uh, the laws that were passed, they had a lot of control over police and uh, uh, newspapers that often only presented their story, uh, really turning employers into heroes. And then anytime workers organized, anytime workers fought back, they would be met with violence in one form or another, whether that was Uh, mass arrests, whether it was the passage of anti-union legislation, which was very common uh, in Washington state where I am, in in Oregon and many other Western states, essentially making it illegal to belong to certain kinds of labor organizations. And that power that employers had a century ago uh, is, and I think you were maybe hinting at this a bit Uh, we can see it reflected in the 21st century as well. And I do think for a lot of people who had maybe kept their head buried in the sand, it was Occupy that really made that gross division of income inequality, uh, wealth inequality, uh, really obvious. And we couldn't deny it any longer.
0: So it's a pretty age-old story, but it's really in in the, the context of your book, again, the Port of Missing Men, which focuses on Billy Goal, who we'll get into as a labor organizer. Uh, He got involved with that, not not representing the lumber industry folks, but the people that were actually transporting a lot of the cut lumber uh, out of the Grays Harbor Port, which at the early 20th century was the largest producer of timber in the world. Is that correct?
1: Right. So today, uh, Grays Harbor is, if it's known for anything, I think it's perhaps as the uh, hometown of Nirvana or as the rainiest place in the contiguous United States. But a century ago, Aberdeen and Oakland were uh, some of the largest cities in the Pacific Northwest. Um, Both were top 10 largest cities, and they produced billions and billions of board feet of uh, lumber that was shipped out of uh, what became the port of Grace Harbor, out of Aberdeen, out of Hoquim. And it was the largest lumber port in the world for decades on end. And of course, for that to happen, workers need to put the lumber on the ships and workers need to transport that lumber on the ships. So we're talking about the importance of longshoremen, longshore workers, as well as sailors. And they represented this important choke point. Uh, Although there's only 100, 200 longshoremen and sailors at any one time in places like Aberdeen and Hoquim during uh, Billy Goal's lifetime, they had the power that they could exercise and did exercise to shut that port down and really stop uh, stop the transportation of cut lumber and thus stop
0: the... (laughs) Uh, acquisition of wealth. Inordinate Uh. wealth for those lumber barons. And this all came about right after 1906, when San Francisco caught on fire, I think 80% of the city had burned to the ground. There was a great demand for building materials. And here just up the coast is Hoquiam. All this wealth of wood can be shipped down there. And people were making a lot of money who owned the, the rights to the forest to do the logging, who owned the ships for the transportation. But the people that weren't making the money were those sailors. And that's where, again, Billy Goles' role came in. He was looking to get livable wages and livable working conditions for these sailors. And a lot of people took offense to that.
1: Anytime there's a disaster, there are people with power who were looking to profit off of that disaster, whether it's uh, an earthquake and a fire, as in San Francisco, whether it's the pandemic (laughs) in our own time, unfortunately. But it was 1906, this devastating earthquake and fire that just leveled San Francisco. And in the aftermath of that, there was, of course, a reconstruction project. And for that reconstruction, people in San Francisco needed cut lumber. And the main source of that cut lumber was going to be the Northwest. And to get it there, and to get it there by just an incredible amount of of ships needed to transport it, employers needed to rev up production, rev rev up transportation. And they saw money signs, Uh, the shipping owners, the captains, the owners of mills they saw the opportunity to rebuild San Francisco and line their own pockets. The workers, though, whether we're talking about building trades in San Francisco, whether we're talking about longshoremen, whether we're talking about sailors like uh, Billy Gole and his and his coworkers, they weren't automatically going to improve their condition. In fact, they were going to have to fight, and in some cases, die to get a living wage, you know, doing the labor necessary to to rebuild San Francisco. And Billy Goal was at the center of that.
0: All right. So let's let's now focus in on Billy Goal, infamously known as the Ghoul of Gray's Harbor. We'll find out why in a little bit. But where did Billy Goal actually come from?
1: So Billy is uh, an immigrant from Germany and came to the United States in the late 19th century. He was part of this massive flow of millions and millions of immigrants to to the United States during the late 19th and early 20th century. And he also represented this group of Northern Europeans who dominated Pacific shipping. Um, In fact, almost all Pacific Coast sailors like Billy, were Germans, Scandinavians, Finns, um, and the like. Virtually no native-born Americans performed that work. It was one of these jobs that many considered to be too dirty, too difficult, too dangerous. It had very little appeal to most people. And so immigrants ended up doing it. And Billy came to the United States And traveled as a sailor, but also performing other types of migratory labor uh, across the Pacific coast from Alaska to San Francisco. And he was one of these millions of migratory workers who in many ways built the modern American West, who built the roads, did the mining, who, uh, who cut the trees, who did the farming and who transported those goods. By 1900, Billy's living in a boarding house, along with other sailors in San Francisco, dozens of German and Scandinavian sailors. And it was in that, in that job, in those living conditions that he has, by the early 20th century, emerged as a fairly prominent, as a fairly important voice for, for organized labor in the Bay Area, which was and is... Uh, the home of the Sailors Union of the Pacific, as well as the West Coast Longshore Workers, the it's at the it's always been the center of maritime unionism.
0: And then he ended up in Aberdeen in the uh, early 1900s. And when he got there again, taking that reputation, that uh, experience he had, he became sort of a business agent for the uh, Sailors Union of the Pacific in Aberdeen, didn't he? Right. So after years
1: of working on on ships and often loading and unloading those ships on in ports where there uh, weren't always longshoremen, he was elected by the Union as a whole uh, to be the uh, Union representative in Aberdeen. And we're talking about 1902, 1903. So Aberdeen and Hoquham were just... Being carved out of the forest, carved out of the mud, carved out of the riverside, and starting to become important industrial centers. So, right at that time, right as the city is moving from being a village into one of the largest cities in the Pacific Northwest, Billy is elected by his colleagues to become the uh, union agent, and he settles there in 1903, right at this time when Aberdeen and Hoquim are becoming important industrial cities. This transition is very important for uh, for Billy's life because he had spent many, many years enduring some of the most unspeakable conditions really, truly violent conditions on ships as a wage laborer aboard ship. He had endured certainly violent captains, violent first mates who beat, sometimes killed sailors who shanghaied. So they would kidnap sailors because the conditions aboard ships were so bad. And he endured shipwrecks. So he brought those experiences, those class experiences as a worker and as a working class immigrant to his life as a union official. And as a business agent, he basically provided the sailors for the ship owners, for the captains. So uh, in order for a ship to sail out of Aberdeen and Hoquim, uh, they needed to be supplied with union labor. And so Billy had, again, had this important choke point. If captains, if ship owners had reputations for violence for cruelty, for being bad employers, for shorting workers, he could and did refuse to provide them with sailors. Pre, uh, refuse to man the ships, and that, of course, is going to antagonize the ship owners and the uh, the lumber mill owners, and they're often the same same people who need these ships and need workers to in order to uh, to make money.
0: So as Billy was. Was standing up, backing his sailors. You know, he pushed back and he said, Look, if we're going to uh, subject our people to, to working on these very dangerous conditions, let's at least uh, improve their living conditions, improve the, the humanity of the work they're doing, try to get them a little bit more money. And the, the folks that had the, all the power, all the money, and all the wealth said no. And so Billy used the strength of his union and his connections to basically shut down the port, as you said, and, and stop that flow of money to those folks. And they didn't like it. So they employed some union breaking firms to look into what was going on here and see what we can do to get rid of this Billy fellow. Right. So I think probably
1: your listeners, if there's one company in American history that's As notorious or infamous as any other for its anti-unionism, it's the Pinkerton Detective Agency, the most notorious anti-union agency in American history. They provided detectives, uh, undercover agents to, to break unions. Well, in the late 19th century, in the American West in particular, a second agency emerged there were... There were several of these agencies, but the second largest was an agency called the Thiel Detective Agency. It actually is formed by a Pinkerton. And the Thiels become not as famous for sure, but they do the exact same thing. They uh, provide detectives to mine owners, to factory owners, to
0: local officials, to essentially... Bust up unions. (laughs) That's right, to bust unions. There was no detective work being done. It was a union-busting business model.
1: Absolutely. And quite often, they would work hand-in-hand with armed strike breakers. And so in the 1906 strike that you mentioned, uh, the local police are refusing to and incapable of uh, breaking the strike. And so local employers, dentists, lawyers, small businessmen, they are sworn in essentially as vigilantes and then uh, these strike breaking firms that promised they could uh, get thousands of workers anywhere in the United States, within 48 hours, they're, you know, very efficient strike breakers. They would provide these armed strike breakers. And during the 1906 strike, like in so many other strikes, those strike breakers, often operating hand in hand with the detectives, hand in hand with the Pinkertons, murder two unionists, um, which is, again, unfortunately, very common in American labor history.
0: So aside from murdering people that are standing up for themselves, what other tactics did they use, Aaron, to to try to break up these strikes?
1: Right. So it varies over time. One tactic is uh, to get a large group of uh, vigilantes and to round up the so-called troublemakers, and ra- and deport them from the town. That happened in Aberdeen and Hopeland and neighboring towns quite often. Um, it would happen as often as not to immigrant groups who had uh, started to stand up for their rights. So 1906, 1907, a group of Italian uh, road builders were rounded up and shipped out. Uh, 1911, 1912, the same thing happens with Greek and Finnish workers. And then beyond this, uh, the ethnic element uh, to it, quite commonly, it would just be a massive roundup of any labor agitator. They would be picked up, not put in jail, just shipped right out and then refused entry. That That's one option. The perhaps better known option is for these Pinkertons, for these Thiel agents to uh, infiltrate a union or, say, a left-wing workers' political party, socialist party, communist party, and to uh, stir up trouble and to then produce reports that they would send to their employers uh, lying about the activities of the workers. And this, uh, although today, 100 years later, Many people know that this happened, and 100 years ago, many people knew that that happened. Unfortunately, the Pinkertons and the Thiel agents and other uh, strikebreakers had very good reputations in the eyes of the Chamber of Commerce, in the eyes of newspapers. So anything that these Pinkertons, that these strikebreakers do, is painted in the most positive light Imaginable. They are often cast as heroes in the Seattle Times, in the Oregonian, in the uh, Centralia Chronicle, and locally for me, the Aberdeen Daily World, and all the other local newspapers. These people, whose job it is to destroy unions, are cast as heroes standing up to darkness, the the Red Scare and
0: the like. So again the 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 money controlled the media, the media painted the picture that these were, you know, right. folks doing the right thing and that those strikers were uh, in the wrong and we just need to get back to business the way it was. So so how did Billy Gole survive all of this? Unfortunately, he didn't for that long, but for several years he
1: did what so many union activists did. He relied on numbers. He relied on the reality which was that Aberdeen and Hoquim were among the most heavily organized, the most Uh, had among the highest union densities of anywhere in the Pacific Northwest. And he was enormously popular among those people. He was elected twice as president of the Grace Harbor Labor Council, which again, not only is he being elected by all the Pacific sailors, U.S. Pacific sailors, so thousands, he's also being elected to serve as the representative of thousands of local unionists, um, as their voice uh, to write letters to the newspapers and stand up. So for years he had this tremendous backing of fellow unionists, and they they treat him like like a hero. He gets arrested on several occasions. That for violently attacking strike breakers, for leading strikers in sort of like gangs of New York style warfare against strike breakers.
0: Using the tactics of the strike breakers on, them, on themselves.
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, and that's something that you see throughout the early 20th century is you see uh, strikers, workers, unionists arming themselves to fight on the streets against strike breakers, against police and the like. So he was enormously popular, easily the uh, most popular, best known, best respected union leader in, again, the place that in some ways had the strongest labor movement in the Northwest, along with Seattle uh, and a few other places.
0: And then became the beginning of the end for Billy Goal when he met someone named Patty McHugh who I think was one of those field detective agency spies. He was a bar owner who befriended Billy and began to concoct a story about Billy's involvement in killing of one of Billy's best friends, Charles Hadberg. What can you tell us about that?
1: So after years of the Sailors Union, along with other maritime unions, really fighting for workers' rights, of course, after the real high point of labor activism, the 1906 maritime strike But then after several years of Billy refusing uh, the ships owned by and operated by uh, notorious captains, um, a group of business owners come together. And we know some of their names. We know uh, banker William Patterson, who was also the head of the Chamber of Commerce, head of the Elks Club, uh, one of the most important and wealthiest employers in the uh, Pacific Northwest. Him and a few others form a Citizens Committee. And people familiar with uh, labor history in the Northwest, sorry, in the American West and the wider United States, that term will ring a bell, just like Pinkertons, just like strikebreakers, because these citizens committees came together, they were employers who came together to figure out strategies to deal with what they would call the labor problem. They sometimes would call themselves citizens alliances. And in fact, there was a national organization of citizens alliances. So they would communicate with each other. They would send each other lists of problematic workers who needed to be blacklisted. So in Grace Harbor, this group of employers they decide who's going to be the next mayor. They wanted someone who was pliable. They wanted someone who they could control, someone who would appoint anti-labor police chief and police officers who they could control. And they raised about uh, $10,000 to hire several field agents to come to Aberdeen and Hoquim and to get to know Billy and to uh, infiltrate his union activities that they started to refer to almost as a mafia. And they started to paint this narrative that uh these union activists were corrupt, violent, mafia style people. It's in some ways it's similar at a smaller level to what would happen with the Teamsters in later later decades.
0: And they started drumming up false charges on Billy, like uh they, they said they brought him in saying, hey, you stole a bicycle. And it turns out the bicycle was was actually his own, and they it kind of got laughed out of court. And then they they trumped up something else on him, and that one got dismissed. But then the Charles Hadberg murder was sort of the the, the first of many nails in his coffin. It seems like right. So Charles Hadberg was a working sailor like Billy. He
1: uh, he lived with Billy for some time. Billy and and his wife Bessie go um, but uh, beyond that, he also lived in one of these riverside shacks along the uh, Chehalis and the Wishka rivers there in Aberdeen. And these shacks alone are kind of interesting because sailors as migratory workers, they are essentially homeless um, when they're not working, um, especially if they can't afford room and board. So Billy and some other sailors constructed this uh, these small cabins along the riversides for uh, sailors and Hadberg lives there. Well, what happens in late 1909, early 1910 is that uh, Charles Hadberg, again one of Billy's good friends, uh, disappears, and the, the Thiel agent, this uh, Patty McHugh, goes to the chief of police in Aberdeen, and this Thiel agent tells the chief of police that Billy had confessed to killing this guy, Charles Hadberg. His friend. His his probably best friend. So uh, a, a body turns up um, in a local waterway in early 1910. Billy is then arrested because there's this accusation from this Pinkerton agent that Billy had done it. And now there's a body and a body that's unexplained. Billy is put in jail in Aberdeen. And at that moment, early 1910, Until he's convicted a few months later and all the way up to the present, there's headlines produced, the story produced, not only that Billy killed Charles Hadberg, but that he had run a murder ring worse than what we would know today, uh, the kinds of crimes committed by Ted Bundy and the like, that he was one of the worst serial killers in American history. So they take this accusation from a, a union busting private detective and the existence of a dead body floating in the in the river uh, arrest billy and then local newspapers concoct this story that billy had killed dozens possibly hundreds of people every crime that had been committed in gray's harbor which like so many areas of the so-called Wild West did have a very violent history, did have a lot of, you know, young people dying too soon. But those all get placed at Billy's door. Get pinned on him. Right. And it's, it's this incredible bit of narrative creation because this place that had gotten a reputation as the port of missing men, as my book's called, but also... This place with a almost worldwide reputation as a tough place, like, but- like many other Western cities. All of that violence, all of that danger gets placed on one person. So in the aftermath of Billy's arrest, the city... City elites can claim that Aberdeen, that Hogwim are now safe places, safe for visitors, so, safe for tourists and investors. It's an incredible bit of narrative creation.
0: So I'll stop you right there, Aaron, because from what I understand from reading your book, that that the body was never quite identified as being Charles Hadberg, that the sailors in, in the hundreds came to the morgue to see this body that was found that they claimed was Charles Hadberg. And none of them could identify that body as Charles Hadberg and that Billy Goal was not given access to properly identify this person. So there's no true evidence that that the body that they found was truly Charles Hadberg's.
1: Right. And I think that this is a very important point you just made and something that I think listeners need to try to wrap their heads around here. There's a dead body that had been floating for some time, first underwater, then floating, in a waterway, it's brought to the morgue, and uh, city officials identify it as being Charles Hadberg. The only people who would know Charles Hadberg are his fellow workers, the the sailors, as well as his very good friend, Billy Goal. The sailors are initially refused access to see the body, but there's a lot of them, and they force their way in, and they say, that's not Charles Hadberg. Billy Gould, his very good friend, is not able to identify him. He's not able to be let out of jail to go identify or not identify the body. So local elites do identify it as Hadberg. And I I admit there's a chance it was his body. But it's quite a leap to suggest, as so many people have, that not only is that his body, but that his best friend killed him. But all those union activists then lied, and then also Billy was responsible for all the deaths that had ever happened in this area. The union even went so far as to refuse union burial to uh, this body. So they are really taking it to the limit. They're standing with their comrade, their leader, their elected official, Billy Gohan, saying, that is not Charles Hadberg. How would you local elites, local police possibly know who that person is.
0: And so, again, this friend of the working class, this advocate for for workers' rights, a person who stood up against the tyranny of these lumber barons, is now being proposed to be the, the mass murderer of so many of the people he was standing up for. And as you said, it's a very dangerous environment. The logging industry dangerous, being a sailor at sea being dangerous, being a longshoreman, all dangerous occupations. And it wasn't made any less dangerous in Aberdeen and Hoquiam by the basically the living conditions. There were unlit streets, there were canals and waterways that uh, the, the saloons would butt up right against to. And it wasn't uncommon for sailors to be what sailors are and, and get have a little too much to drink, fall off in, in the middle of the night and end up in the uh, the frigid waters of the pacific northwest and drown and so h- hence the the floater fleet came came to to be known but they're now trying to say that billy goal you know friend of the working class is responsible for this he would rob these people he would then execute them and i understand they even concocted a story that he had a trap door in his office that he'd pull a lever and they'd splash into the river below his office place is that true
1: Yeah, that's part of the story. And that, like uh, this trap door that he would uh, dispose of bodies, that's a very interesting piece of this story, like so many, because in the years prior to his arrest, Billy became something of a temperance advocate. He began to argue that there were these dozens of saloons in Aberdeen and Hoquham, and there were, there are about 50, and that the worst of them would prey upon Workers, You know, these workers who support him, elect him that he's friends with and that they oftentimes uh, saloon owners and uh, local whatever local ruffians would rob and drug uh, local workers and then drop them into the uh, into the river. So Billy had been making these accusations against uh, some saloon owners who were themselves a very powerful local group. And he outright accused some of the saloon owners in uh, letters to the editor of taking advantage, even killing workers. And it's interesting because the narrative that gets remembered really flips it on his head. And he is remembered as the person who did that, even though he was the one who is trying to get some of the worst saloons, some of what he called dives to be uh, shut down. And you're exactly right about how dangerous the Pacific Northwest was. Logging was easily the most dangerous job in the West. Dozens of people would be killed per per year in that sawmills were one of the most dangerous. Loggers, longshore workers, also very dangerous. And most of the local deaths were industrial cause of what we might call industrial accidents, industrial violence. Those who didn't die from that quite often stumbled off the streets into these waterways uh, on a you know, a cold winter night after drinking too much.
0: And it's not a stretch of the imagination by any means to go from Billy Gold to to Billy Ghoul, Ghoul of Grey's Harbor. And that was, you know, again, a construct of someone's imagination, at least according to, to Billy himself, who said that this sounds like it's the, you know, the imagination of Pulp Fiction writers. And he denied the accusation of killing his friend, Charles Hadberg. But supposedly he had an accomplice, and this accomplice was, according to to what I read in your book, coerced into making a confession that Billy actually did do the murder. What can you tell us about uh, John Klingenberger?
1: So John Klingenberg, like almost all Pacific Coast sailors, was a Scandinavian immigrant, um, he was one of these people like Charles Hadberg, who was very close friends with Billy, and he, in early 1910, left Aberdeen on a uh, lumber ship heading to Mexico. He was down in Mexico. Local officials in Aberdeen contact the captain of the ship down in Mexico and say, "Hey, we think Klingenberg might have information. Um, grab him." And so in Mexico, Lingenberg tries to quit and tries to leave the ship, but he's not allowed to leave the ship. He is instead drugged and kidnapped by the captain of a vessel and brought back to Aberdeen and Hoquim, where he is then interrogated by one of a couple different possible uh, men who very who basically offer if he will. Uh, testify against Billy Gould, saying that Billy Gould uh, killed Charles Hadbert, that he will not be prosecuted. So they kidnap a guy in Mexico, bring him to Grays Harbor. He's then interrogated... Without a lawyer. Oh, yeah. there's Without There's time. no lawyer involved in this. And quite likely, the person who interrogated him was one of these Pinkertons, who are known, just absolutely so well-known for their violent behavior. And so they uh, coerce a, a confession out of Klingenberg. He does end up testifying against Billy Gould. And then he th- himself, John Klingenberg, is put on trial, at which point he says this whole thing is a put-up job. So, again, I, w- I want to emphasize that there is certainly a possibility that Billy Gould killed one person. But I, I wrote this book because there's something else going on here. There's very clearly a group of powerful people who saw Billy as an enemy and uh, went to great lengths to silence him. But these lengths that they went to are not unheard of. In fact, union activists, the country and the world over, have been assassinated. They've been imprisoned. They've been
0: deported. This is just one part of that story. And so wrapping up this story about Billy Gold, though, he did get sentenced to life in prison, uh, hard manual labor. And after being uh, sentenced, I think it was seven years later, he passed away in a uh, in the penitentiary. Is that is that correct? 17 years oh, later. 17 so he,
1: years of hard labor. So he is sentenced to life in prison at the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla. Um, his wife Bessie, who was always by his side, who had helped with his defense, uh, she moves to Walla Walla as well to be near to him. They divorce a couple years later, um, but he uh, ultimately is declared insane and then dies in a prison hospital in Eastern Washington in in 1927.
0: Wow, that's horrible. And yet the myth continues today. A quick search on YouTube. You can find all sort of conspiracy theory type videos out there touting the, uh, the ghoul of Grays Harbor legacy and continuing to add more fuel to that, uh, what appears to be not a, a very truthful story. Right, and I think that this story—and I
1: picked it up—it's one of several labor histories that I have written that I intend to write during my life. But this story so stood out to me because it speaks to the importance of power and the importance of, of class and and of activism, and not just activism by workers, but by activism of employers. We see it today in the, the supposedly progressive Northwest with Amazon, with Starbucks, et cetera, doing anything they can to bust unions. That's been the case since the beginning of Euro-American settlement in, in the Northwest is uh, that those in power will coordinate and they will use the state when necessary to harm workers. And the story stands out to me because so many people have heard of Billy Goal, and there is so much on the internet about the so-called ghoul of Grace Harbor they seem to be very dismissive of the reality of his life and the reality of what American history is
0: so being a, a professor of history and, and someone who's involved with the uh, the labor movement what do you what do you think we can learn Aaron from our somewhat bloody past and what People listening right now, what is the takeaway after reading your book? Where should we go from here?
1: Well, I think that I try to always take a couple lessons out of this. And one of them, just to reiterate what I said, is that United States, like the rest of the world, is is divided in a variety of ways. One of the main ones is by class. And those who own factories, those who, those who have a great deal of wealth, those who have high incomes... They are always organizing. They uh, have tremendous political power, tremendous media power, and they know each other. They act, they meet together. They have organizations like the Chamber of Commerce, like the Business Roundtable. They, of course, act through you know political parties.
0: And um, we're talking real quick, Aaron. Not not just the general business owner. I mean, we're, we're you know a lot of the listeners here are working for for construction companies, perhaps that you know it's. It, a lot of them have humble beginnings, but we're talking about the people, the multi-million dollar corporations, the billion-dollar corporations, the, the conglomerates out there that are truly controlling the narrative, that can change policy, that can affect the bottom line of the working middle class of this country. Those are the people that we're addressing, not not necessarily the you know the startup type uh, construction companies.
1: I mean, I think the the locally rich is organizing in its own its own ways, but no, I mean, there's a, there's an awful lot of small business owners who are just struggling to get by. What I'm talking about, again, are those who run the show, those Bezos, et cetera, the people who have access to the White House, to the governor's offices, the senators, et cetera. They have tremendous power, and they're always organizing. My takeaway from many years studying labor, being involved uh, with the labor movement in different ways is that they're if they're always struggling, if they're always collaborating, if they're always working together, we better do it too because they're going to take care of themselves. And all we have is each other and what working people have is numbers. Employers have money. Employers have a lot of power. Workers have... The power of the vote. The, the vote, yeah, certainly part of it. Uh, and then the potential of the strike. And if 100 years ago... 120 years ago, these the workers of the world came together and fought back and formed unions in the face of danger. I think that that's a real inspiration for what working people can do today. And I'm constantly impressed, especially in the last few years, by what's happening at Starbucks, what's happening at Amazon, what's happening all over the country and what's going on all over the world, that workers are fed up. And they want a piece of the pie, and they're figuring out old strategies, and it's been mighty impressive.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, a lot of uh, blood has been spilt over the years to get us to where we are now, and uh, it's slowly being eroded if we do not stay on guard. It can it can be eroded and it has been eroded, but we need to be able to recognize that and begin to push back. So, Aaron, this has been a fantastic conversation. Where can people go to find more about you and your work, and uh, more importantly, the the new paperback release of the Port of Missing Men?
1: Yeah, thanks, Joe. Uh, this is quite the good timing here um, in, in mid July. The uh, paperback version of the Ford of Missing Men was uh, just uh, released from the University of Washington Press, a press that is actually uh, the workers there are unionized, which is a, a bit rare for academic presses beyond that you can find the book anywhere online i always encourage people to uh, go to powell's you can order a book from powell's get it from a unionized bookstore then it's a unionized press a unionized bookstore it can be delivered to your house by unionized uh, postal service workers and then if you want to know more about me i tweet sometimes about the labor left at red harbor that name there is a Red Harbor is a book that I'm working on uh, my next project.
0: Uh, Fantastic. I'll make sure and add all that to the show notes. Well, Aaron, this has been a a great conversation. Thank you so much for taking your time to be on the show today. Thank you so much, Joe. It's been a real pleasure. My guest today has been Aaron Goings, author of The Port of Missing Men. To dive deeper into this topic, be sure to check out the show notes for this episode or visit the Grit Nation website at gritnationpodcast.com please consider sharing the show with a friend, family member, or anyone else you think may get something out of it. And if you haven't already done so, please take one minute to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really does matter. And if you have left a review or rating, thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Joe Cadwell reminding you to work safe, work smart, and stay union strong.
1: Not to be too much Captain Obvious here, but I've always been impressed by apprenticeships that building trades do. And I know that perhaps more active than others at like reaching out to incarcerated people, but just in general, like offering this important opportunity to, you know, to have a halfway decent life. And I mean, man, it's, it's so good that you all do that.